all the best Bitcoin works read aloud so that you can listen. This is a Cryptoconomy Quick Read. What is up, crew? We have got a great one today. We are jumping back into the Gradually Then Suddenly series to close out the week. Uh, this is, again, from the Unchained Capital crew. Uh, this is, like, number nine in the series. We've only got one more left after this one uh, because we already did uh, Bitcoin Obsolete's All Other Money, uh, which is just amazing. But you guys got to listen to this whole series. It's so good. Uh, all by Parker Lewis. Um, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into the article for today, and it is titled, Bitcoin Cannot Be Banned. The idea that somehow Bitcoin can be banned by governments is the final stage of grief, right before acceptance. The consequence of the statement is an admission that Bitcoin works. In fact, it posits that Bitcoin works so well that it will threaten the incumbent government-run monopolies on money, in which case governments will regulate it out of existence to eliminate the threat. Think about the claim that governments will ban Bitcoin as conditional logic. Is Bitcoin functional as money? If not, governments have nothing to ban. If yes, then governments will attempt to ban Bitcoin. So the anchor point for this line of criticism assumes that Bitcoin is functional as money. And then the question becomes whether or not government intervention could successfully cause an otherwise functioning Bitcoin to fail. As a starting point, anyone trying to understand how, why, or if Bitcoin works should assess the question entirely independent from the implications of government regulation or intervention. While Bitcoin will undoubtedly have to coexist alongside various regulatory regimes, imagine governments did not exist. On a standalone basis, would Bitcoin be functional as money if left to the free market? This will inevitably lead to a number of rabbit hole questions. What is money? What are the properties that make a particular medium a better or worse form of money? Does Bitcoin share those properties? Is Bitcoin a better form of money based on its properties? If the ultimate conclusion becomes that Bitcoin is not functional as money, well, the implications of government intervention are irrelevant. However, if Bitcoin is functional as money, the question then becomes relevant to the debate, and anyone considering the question would need that prior context as a baseline to evaluate whether or not it would be possible. By design, Bitcoin exists beyond governments. But Bitcoin is not just beyond the control of governments. It functions without the coordination of any central third parties. It is global and decentralized. Anyone can access Bitcoin on a permissionless basis, and the more widespread it becomes, the more difficult it becomes to censor the network. The architecture of Bitcoin is practically purpose-built to resist and immunize any attempts by governments to ban it. This is not to say that governments all over the world will not attempt to regulate, tax, or even ban its use. There will certainly be a fight to resist Bitcoin adoption. 
the Fed and the Treasury and their global counterparts are not just going to lay down as Bitcoin increasingly threatens the monopolies of government money. However, before debunking the idea that governments could outright ban Bitcoin, first understand the very consequence of the statement and the messenger. The Progression of Denial and Stages of Grief The skeptic's narrative consistently shifts over time. Stage 1 of grief? Bitcoin could never work. It is backed by nothing. It is nothing more than a present-day tulip mania. With each hype cycle, the value of Bitcoin rises dramatically and is then followed by a correction. Often extolled as a crash by skeptics, Bitcoin fails to die and in each instance it finds support at levels higher than prior adoption waves. The tulip narrative becomes tired and the skeptics move on to more nuanced issues, re-anchoring the debate. Stage 2 of grief follows. Bitcoin is flawed as a currency. It is too volatile to be money, or it is too slow to be a payment system, or it cannot scale to satisfy all the payments in the world, or it wastes energy. The list goes on. This second step is a progression of denial, and it is a significant departure from the idea that Bitcoin is nothing more than nothingness. Despite the supposed flaws, the value of the Bitcoin network continues to rise over time. Each time it does not die, it gains strength. While the skeptics are busy pointing out flaws, Bitcoin never sleeps. An increase in value is driven by a very simple market dynamic. More buyers than sellers. That is all. And it is a function of increasing adoption. More and more people figure out why there is fundamental demand for Bitcoin and why or how it works. This is what creates long-term demand for Bitcoin. As more people increasingly demand it as a store of value, there is no supply response. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. No matter how many people demand Bitcoin, the supply side is completely fixed and inelastic. As the skeptics continue to shout the same tired lines, the crowd continues to parse the noise and demand Bitcoin due to the strengths of its monetary properties. And no constituency is more well-versed in the arguments against Bitcoin than adopters of Bitcoin themselves. Desperation begins to kick in, and the debate re-anchors once again. The narrative predictably shifts. It is no longer that Bitcoin is not backed by anything, nor that it is flawed as a currency. Instead, the debate centers on regulation and government authorities. In the final stage of grief, it is actually that Bitcoin works too well, and as a consequence, the government will never let it happen and ban it. Really? So human ingenuity somehow reinvents money in a technologically superior medium, the consequences of which are mind-bending, and the government is somehow going to ban that? Recognize that in claiming as much, the skeptics are admitting defeat. It is the dying whimper in a series of failed arguments. The skeptics simultaneously accept that there is fundamental demand for Bitcoin and then pivot to the unfounded belief that governments can ban it. Play this one out. When exactly would developed world governments actually step in and attempt to ban Bitcoin? 
Today, the Fed and the Treasury do not view Bitcoin as a serious threat to dollar supremacy. In their collective mind, Bitcoin is a cute little toy and is not functional as currency. Presently, the Bitcoin network represents a total purchasing power of less than $200 billion. Gold, on the other hand, has a purchasing power of approximately $8 trillion, 40 times the size of Bitcoin. And broad money supply of dollars, or M2, is approximately $15 trillion, 75 times the size of Bitcoin. When does the Fed or Treasury start seriously considering Bitcoin a credible threat? Is it when Bitcoin collectively represents $1 trillion of purchasing power? $2 trillion or $3 trillion? Pick your level, but the implication is that Bitcoin will be far more valuable and held by far more people globally before government powers that be view it as a credible competitor or threat. Quote, I won't be talking about Bitcoin in 10 years, I can assure you that. I would bet even in five or six years I'm no longer talking about Bitcoin as Treasury Secretary. I'll have other priorities. I can assure you I will personally not be loaded up on Bitcoin. End quote. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Quote, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin, which is not money and whose value is highly volatile and based on thin air. End quote. President Donald J. Trump. So the skeptic logic follows. Bitcoin does not work, but if it does work, the government will ban it. But governments in the free world will not attempt to ban Bitcoin until it becomes more apparent that it is a threat, at which time Bitcoin will be more valuable and undoubtedly harder to ban, as it will be held by far more people in far more places. So ignore the fundamentals and the asymmetry inherent in a global monetization event because in the event you turn out to be right, the government will step in to regulate Bitcoin out of existence. Which side of the fence would a rational economic actor rather be on? Owning a monetary asset that has increased in value so dramatically that it threatens the global reserve currency? Or the opposite, not owning that asset? Assuming an individual possesses the knowledge to understand why it is a fundamental possibility and increasingly a probability, which is the more defensible and logical position? The asymmetry alone dictates the former, and any fundamental understanding of the demand for Bitcoin only reinforces the same position. But Bitcoin cannot be banned. Think about what Bitcoin actually represents and then what a ban of Bitcoin would represent. Bitcoin represents the conversion of subjective value created and exchanged in the real world for digital keys. Said more plainly, it is the conversion of an individual's time into money. When someone demands Bitcoin, they are at the same time foregoing demand for some other good, whether it be a dollar, a house, a car, or food, etc. Bitcoin represents monetary savings that comes with the opportunity cost of other goods and services. Banning Bitcoin would be an affront to the most basic freedoms it is designed to both provide and preserve. Imagine the response by all those that have adopted Bitcoin. Well, that was fun. The tool that the experts said would never work now works too well, 
and the same experts and authorities say we can't use it. Everyone go home, show's over, folks. To believe that all the people in the world that have adopted Bitcoin for the financial freedom and sovereignty it provides would suddenly lay down and accept the ultimate infringement of that freedom is not rational. Quote, Money is one of the greatest instruments of freedom ever invented by man. It is money which in existing society opens an astounding range of choice to the poor man, a range greater than that which not many generations ago was open to the wealthy. End quote. F.A. Hayek. Governments could not successfully ban the consumption of alcohol, the use of drugs, the purchase of firearms, or the ownership of gold. A government can marginally restrict access or even make possession illegal, but it cannot make something of value demanded by a broad and disparate group of people magically go away. When the U.S. made the private ownership of gold illegal in 1933, Gold did not lose its value or disappear as a monetary medium. It actually increased in value relative to the dollar, and just 30 years later, the ban was lifted. Not only does Bitcoin provide a greater value proposition relative to any other good that any government has ever attempted to ban, including gold, but by its nature, it is also far harder to ban. Bitcoin is global and decentralized. It is without borders and it is secured by nodes and cryptographic keys. The act of banning Bitcoin would require preventing open source software code from being run and preventing digital signatures created by cryptographic keys from being broadcast on the internet. And it would have to be coordinated across numerous jurisdictions, except there is no way to know where the keys actually reside or to prevent more nodes from popping up in different jurisdictions. Setting aside the constitutional issues, it would be technically infeasible to enforce a ban of Bitcoin in any meaningful way. Even if all countries in the G20 coordinated to ban Bitcoin in unison, it would not kill Bitcoin. Instead, it would be the fait accompli for the fiat system it would reinforce to the masses that Bitcoin is a formidable currency, and it would set off a global and hopeless game of whack-a-mole. There is no central point of failure in Bitcoin. Bitcoin miners, nodes, and keys are distributed throughout the world. Every aspect of Bitcoin is decentralized, which is why running nodes and controlling keys is core to Bitcoin. The more keys and the more nodes that exist, the more decentralized Bitcoin becomes and the more immune Bitcoin is to attack. The more jurisdictions in which mining exists, the less risk any single jurisdiction represents to Bitcoin's security function. A coordinated state-level attack would only serve to build the strength of Bitcoin's immune system. It would ultimately accelerate the shift away from the legacy financial system and legacy currencies and it would accelerate innovation within the Bitcoin economic system. With each passing threat, Bitcoin innovates to immunize the threat. A coordinated state-level attack would be no different. Permissionless innovation on a globally decentralized basis is the reason Bitcoin gains strength from every attack. It is the attack vector itself 
which causes Bitcoin to innovate. It is Adam Smith's invisible hand on steroids. Individual actors may believe themselves to be motivated by a greater cause, but in reality, the utility embedded in Bitcoin creates a sufficiently powerful incentive structure to ensure its survival. The self-interests of millions, if not billions, of uncoordinated individuals aligned by their individual and collective need for money incentivizes permissionless innovation on top of Bitcoin. Today it may seem like a cool new technology or a nice-to-have portfolio investment, but even if most people do not yet recognize it, Bitcoin is a necessity. It is a necessity because money is a necessity, and legacy currencies are fundamentally broken. Two months ago, the repo markets in the U.S. broke, and the Fed quickly responded by increasing the supply of dollars by $250 billion, with more to come. It is precisely why Bitcoin is a necessity, not a luxury. When an innovation happens to be a basic necessity to the functioning of an economy, there is no government force that could ever hope to stop its proliferation. Money is a very basic necessity, and Bitcoin represents a step-function-change innovation in the global competition for money. And more practically, any attempt to ban Bitcoin or heavily regulate its use by any jurisdiction would directly benefit a competing jurisdiction. The incentive to defect from any coordinated effort to ban Bitcoin would be far too high to sustain such an agreement across jurisdictions. If the United States made the possession of Bitcoin illegal tomorrow, would it slow down proliferation, development, and adoption of Bitcoin? And would it cause the value of the network to decline intermittently? Probably. Would it kill Bitcoin? No. Bitcoin represents the most mobile capital in the world. Countries and jurisdictions that create regulatory certainty and place the least amount of restrictions on the use of Bitcoin will benefit significantly from capital inflows. The Banning Bitcoin Prisoner's Dilemma Country A and Country B cooperate to ban Bitcoin. Bitcoin wins. The ban fails. Bitcoin adoption accelerates. Fiat currencies deteriorate more rapidly. Country A bans Bitcoin, while Country B defects, accepting Bitcoin. Bitcoin wins. Capital outflows from Country A, capital inflows to Country B. Country A accepts Bitcoin and defects, while Country B bans Bitcoin. Bitcoin wins. Capital outflows from Country B, capital inflows to Country A. Country B accepts Bitcoin, and Country A accepts Bitcoin. Bitcoin wins. Everyone wins. Benefits from trade and specialization. In practice, the prisoner's dilemma is not one-to-one. -one. It is multi-dimensional, involving numerous jurisdictions, all with competing interests, making any attempts to successfully ban Bitcoin that much more impractical. Human capital physical capital, and monetary capital will flow to the countries and jurisdictions with the least restrictive regulations on Bitcoin. It may not happen overnight, but attempting to ban Bitcoin is the equivalent of a country cutting off its nose to spite its face. It doesn't mean that countries will not try. India has already tried to ban Bitcoin. China has attempted to heavily restrict its use. Others will follow. 
But each time a country takes an action to restrict the use of Bitcoin, it actually has the unintended effect of promoting Bitcoin adoption. Attempts to ban Bitcoin are an extremely effective marketing tool for Bitcoin. Bitcoin exists as a non-sovereign, censorship-resistant form of money. It is designed to exist beyond the state. Attempts to ban Bitcoin merely serve to reinforce Bitcoin's reason for existence and ultimately its value proposition. The only winning move is to play. Banning Bitcoin is a fool's errand. Some will try, all will fail. And the very attempts to ban Bitcoin will accelerate its adoption and proliferation. It will be the 100-mile-per-hour wind that fuels the wildfire. It will also make Bitcoin stronger and more reliable, further immunizing it from attack and reinforcing its anti-fragile nature. And in any case, believing governments will ban Bitcoin if it becomes a credible threat to global reserve currencies is an irrational reason to discount it as a savings technology. It both seeds that Bitcoin is viable as money, while at the same time ignoring the principal reasons as to why. Decentralization and censorship resistance. Imagine understanding the greatest present secret in the world and not capitalizing on the asymmetry and utility that Bitcoin provides in fear of government. More likely, either someone understands why Bitcoin works and that it will not fail at the hands of a government, or a knowledge gap exists as to how Bitcoin is able to function in the first place. Begin by understanding the fundamentals, and then apply that as a baseline to assess any potential risk posed by future government intervention or regulation. And never discount the value of asymmetry. The only winning move is to play. The next edition, Bitcoin is not for criminals. It's for everyone. Views presented are expressly my own and not those of Unchained Capital or my colleagues. Thanks to Phil Geiger for reviewing and for providing valuable feedback. All right. Now, I uh, don't have a whole lot of time for commentary today, but I still want to hit at least a couple of points because uh, this is another awesome installment in the Gradually Then Suddenly series. So let's go ahead and hit our sponsor, and then we'll talk a little bit about this article. All right. So a, uh, a quick thank you to Unchained Capital. Uh, as usual, for having one of the best blogs in this space, and of course, Parker Lewis for this uh, massively entertaining and educational series. I've been loving this, um, and I can't get enough of it, so I hope he doesn't stop. Uh, Bitcoin Obsoletes All Other Money would be a hell of a finale if that is the last piece, but I gotta say, I would, I would like to see what he, if he just keeps going, what, what we end up with. So, if you're not following Parker Lewis or Unchained Capital at this point, then I don't know what's wrong with you, and I'll tell you to do it one more time. But, uh, you know, this is your choice. It's your choice. You're missing out. So this, this topic, though, does come up a lot. Um, when I was on uh, Jason Stapleton show, um, uh, what is it? Wealth, Power, and Influence. Um, I, I keep calling it this Jason Stapleton show because that's what it used to be. Um, but... Uh, when I was on his show, he, he brought that up too. And it's something, it's a very, very common thread of like, the more you explain, oh, it does work. Oh, it does have value. Oh, you know, it is 
going up. It is getting easier to use. You can buy it on Cash App. You can spend it at places. You can use Fold App and BitRefill to get gift cards. You can spend it with, you can fund debit cards and spend it anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the more you convince people of all of those things, the more they're like, well, okay, but governments are going to ban it. And governments do, don't have a history of outright banning things. I, I take that back. That's, a, that's totally wrong. Governments have a history of banning stuff all the time. But more in this day and age, it's much more difficult to outright ban a thing. And it's kind of been, particularly in the U.S., and I think U.S. is really a, um, a key factor here because so many countries, like the EU and uh, the U.S., tend to kind of go hand-in-hand hand with a lot of the things that they choose to do. So if you would expect or see the U.S. doing a thing, a lot of the times you can expect other countries in the G20, the EU, that sort of thing, to typically follow along, to do something relatively similar in their stance. But the U.S. is not recently really in the business of outright banning things. They like to very softly and from many different avenues attempt to regulate it into either obscurity or um, un under uh, very strict control, which I think we already have. Um, I, I think we're already seeing what it looks like when the government attempts to do that very thing. KYC AML is a perfect example of a not an outright ban, but an attempt at very strict and deep control over what and how people use a thing, and then also their attempt at negating what is perceived as one of the powerful benefits of Bitcoin um, and cryptocurrencies in general that is kind of antithetical to what they see as their authority is the average person being able to transact with it privately and not tell them about it. Um, and that's where you get situations like uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but the poor guy who ran Dropbit and ran a mixer. And apparently because he had a deal, it's like the, the Helix mixer, I believe. And because he supposedly had some sort of a deal with one of the Darknet markets. And I don't know exactly what that means. Like, uh, other than the fact that like, 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 why would you even need to make a deal? Like, the Helix was just kind of typically, like, was just open to use. So it would be like, okay, well, the Helix, um, or excuse me, this particular dark net market, whatever it was, um, is dedicated to using the Helix mixer. Like, that's just the one that they use for all of their, you know, deposits or withdrawals or whatever it is. So I don't know if they have, like, an actual recorded conversation with these people or if um you know somebody spilled the beans like maybe they shut down the darknet market and then one of the admins were like well we made a deal with blah 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 you know cut my sentence or something like that um, so i don't really know how any of that has, has unfolded but the the fact that this is being attacked as a money laundering crime um that just you didn't tell you tried to obscure where and how you own wealth and did not tell us. You, you essentially tried to gain your privacy um, at our direct expense to, your, to, to the knowledge of everything and anything that you do with your finances. Uh, and therefore, 
uh, you were a criminal. And this is one of those things that that's not, I mean, what is it, the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, Fourth Amendment is the right to privacy and all that other jazz. And like you don't, you shouldn't have to, like, this is not a declaration that they didn't pay their taxes on it. This is not a claim that, like, money laundering doesn't involve any of that. Money laundering literally just means you either explicitly lied or explicitly left out about where the money is from. So despite its incredibly negative connotation and its normal, I guess you could say normalcy in the mind of the public as being a quote-unquote crime, there's really not a whole lot there. It's just the assumption that because there was laundering involved that, okay, uh, there must have been some sort of crime. There must have been drugs. There must have been murder. There must have been something terrible at the other end of this because why would they want their privacy otherwise? And clearly in the case of a darknet market, we've got drugs. So it's really easy to just excuse something like that as necessary or um, as since it's related to a crime. It's like Ross Ulbricht. It's like, you know, excusing the fact that um, he went to jail for multiple life sentences for literally running a website. Like, this wasn't charged with um, actually selling or doing drugs. Like, none of that. It was for running the website which other people use to buy and sell drugs. And, um, uh, but the crime, the supposed reason that he deserves to be in jail is because of the, uh, the more I dig into it, the seemingly ridiculous uh accusation that he tried to have someone murdered but he's not been charged or uh been to court he he was not none of it was about that but that's the excuse and that's kind of how money laundering is attacked is that because uh it's enough to just assume that some other really bad crime happened and therefore we're going to get you for this not really doesn't really make any sense crime but that's the reason that this other terrible thing was enabled. Therefore, you basically did this terrible thing. So that's how, that's the sort of perspective I expect to be at the base of any attempt to control or ban Bitcoin, really, because that's the perspective, that's the kind of foundation of doing that right now to um, prevent, like I do expect, um, possible, like what a ban might look like to me, like a, a legitimate, like next steps going forward. What is a ban? What, like, they're, what are they going to ban about Bitcoin? I think they're going to ban mixers. Um, that uh, they can't outright ban privacy, you know, Fourth Amendment and all that jazz. But I can see them doing everything they can to make it extremely difficult, um, and will indirectly attempt to ensure that every single thing needs extensive KYC AML, and maybe they'll ramp up exactly what you have to do for the KYC AML um, in order to access Bitcoin, and then an outright ban on mixers. But here's the thing, is that a mixer is not a clearly defined thing. Um, like, uh, and it's only because of a handful of reasons now that you can even really know that a mixer is taking place. And... Mixing a bunch of inputs and outputs with the same denomination, like the same nominal amount of Bitcoin, uh, isn't, is also not necessarily a mixer. 
um, the it's basically because they can identify one single institution that is mixing. Uh, like, for instance, Wasabi Wallet uh, was, uh, like, people who were using the Wasabi Wallet recently got uh, their withdrawals or deposits. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but we're getting them halted or um, basically saying, uh, no, you, you need to prove or explain why you were using this mixer or something in order to continue using our service. They're, like, sending out, like, notifications, and people kind of freaked out. They were like, how the hell do they even know? this came from a mixer or that, um, you know, I, I, it was two wallets ago or whatever it was. But the thing was, is that the fees were all going to a set address. So they could basically just watch the fees. And it was pretty obvious that they were in some, uh, they were in the same coin join, uh, by the same institution Wasabi wallet in this instance, uh, as all of these other mixes, um, et cetera. And so, it's in a red flag and you know you got chain analysis and all these or chain analysis and all of these companies um uh working to figure that out there's a couple of easy indicators but in the future that's going to get less less and less obvious it's going to be much more obscure and there's going to be um pretty extensive plausible deniability and uh a because where those fees get paid out to will be obscured whether or not it's i think it's just kind of a there hasn't been any problem yet, so why even try to obscure that? But if you randomized that and made that uh, fresh every single time and hid where the actual mixer was coming from and who and who was actually doing it, it wasn't an obvious institution, well, then how do you clearly define that that was a mix rather than just an aggregate transaction? Maybe it was an aggregate tran transaction of equal amounts because everybody is setting up an equal amount of a lightning channel. I actually tend to do that. I don't use 0.1 Bitcoin or 0.01 Bitcoin like as a rule, but I do try to make channels that are all relatively the same size, like 200-ish dollars or something, like a million sats, two million sats, something like that. So do they think, you know, do they look at that and think, wait, is he mixing? Is there, is there something going on here? And if I do that in an aggregate transaction, how do you distinguish particularly with like Taproot and Schnorr and these other technologies that are coming that are hiding the scripts involved in the transaction um, and basically turning these things into like single public keys and single hashes um, that don't really tell you much information about it. How do you know it's not just transaction compression? What constitutes a mixer versus data compression on the blockchain, which not only will be an absolute necessity, but it will probably be ubiquitous in very short order because it's a necessity. Because to actually utilize this resource, we must be as efficient as possible. Layer 2 and Layer 3 will by default be obscured from these sorts of institutions. And the network analysis on something like Lightning will not be the same. We talked about this recently with the whole like pay yourself through Lightning in the Aaron Von Wortham article on Bitcoin Magazine. Um, uh, paying yourself might be the key to lightning privacy, something like that. I can't remember the title exactly. Um, but that's a really good uh, article, and it, it makes a really good point about uh, the, the handful of ways that you would even try to uncover uh, payment details um, on the lightning network. And they're already, the technology is basically in the line, like already like ready to be implemented or on the verge of being implemented that will obscure most of that network analysis. So that's really where I expect the bulk of the banning to go. 
is trying to um, prevent privacy on it, um, choke points for the main exchanges and uh, heavy KYC AML and the ban of mixers, which I think will actually end up being more attacking any single institution that is responsible for mixing, you know, trying to attack Helix, trying to attack the guy at Dropbit for running it, trying to attack Wasabi. Uh, fingers crossed that those guys are, you know, covering their ass. But centralized mixing institutions are not going to be, like, the technology is already there that anybody can be a mixer. And you don't have to trust the mixer not to steal your coins. So, or uncover your privacy, or be a spy. So how much of a whack-a-mole situation is that going to be? And this is just for privacy. And, and most of these countries have already kind of shown that, just like Parker Lewis details, that they're not worried about this. They don't think that this is like a top concern. They've outright dismissed it and claimed that it is of no threat and is, has no... Um, uh, no legitimacy. I mean, Donald Trump's tweet could not be a better example. They, you know, it's from thin air, just no value, makes no sense. It's tulip mania. How long will they continue to believe that? Peter Schiff has believed that from since Bitcoin was, was it $10 or $40 or something like that? It was like crazy, crazy low. And he hasn't budged. Why would they? And at what point, just like, like, like Parker says, at what point is it one trillion? Is it $2 trillion? Is it $3 trillion? What point do they start to get worried and ask whether or not this thing has legitimate function, whether this is actual real money and a competitor to the fiat system? Because if it's in the trillions of dollars, how, how much effect will they have on it at that point? A trillion dollars. Think about that. $2 trillion. That means that a move in the demand of Bitcoin, that the capital inside of Bitcoin is having a clear and distinct effect on the value and legitimacy of fiat currency. When it gets that big, it is going to throw a lot of things into chaos. Not, I mean, like, like we're going to have economic chaos necessarily, but it is going to throw a lot of ideas. Like there's there are no trillion-dollar things that are arbitrary. Yes, there are bubbles and overhyped excitement and all of that stuff, but after the 90s dot-com bubble, nobody thought the internet was, you know, it got up to somewhere near a trillion dollars, I think, the whole, the whole dot-com bubble. But nobody thought the internet wasn't going to work after that. Maybe they thought it was overhyped, but they knew that the internet was real, that something was happening there that they were failing to understand properly. And Bitcoin could very possibly make that look like child's play. And when it gets to that point, if the governments are truly feel threatened, think about the amount of capital and uh, profit, the inflows that they would have seen already for not yet, yet having banded, for their position of uh, not being aggressive toward it toward it, of basically allowing it to happen. We're talking about an explosion of wealth moving into the countries and uh, into the citizens' hands and the businesses and the holders and the capital gains taxes being paid 
by all of the people in the country who are holding Bitcoin. They'll have just gotten a big check from this. And then now they're having to decide whether or not they're going to outright ban it. While at the same time, Bitcoin just got stronger because now it's got more nodes in more places around the world. It's got more holders, a greater distribution of keys and key holders in every jurisdiction, every language. Everything just got more decentralized and harder to deal with. How clear really is the decision to ban it or attack it? A move like that, a growth in Bitcoin like that, may very well be accompanied by a, an exposure, basically shining a bright light on the failure of fiat currency. It might actually be the very thing, like the, the failures of those currencies may, be, may actually coincide. I mean, what happens when you move a trillion dollars, two trillion dollars from the legacy currency system into this new currency system? How clearly may the narrative look at that point that Bitcoin is in fact a better alternative, that it is in fact a ban, I mean, uh, a threat to the government currency. And if that's the case, how scared might a country be, particularly not the U.S., particularly any country that isn't this giant mega power that probably thinks it's the end-all, be-all of the world, but one that's got $5 trillion in debt. trillion in debt. A weakening fiat currency that they're increasingly failed, failing to manage, increased unrest in their political environment, um, increased division, and they're losing control in all of these other ways. Their purchasing power is declining. Their purchasing power, which is the source of their authority and their ability to control and enact laws on other people, this is degrading while Bitcoin is increasing. And maybe, maybe like he says, you know, maybe you do get a couple of major countries that ban it outright. Now, what does that one country think when they see a $2 trillion market being rejected in country A and little old country B has $2 trillion in debt, and they think, what if we could bring all of that here? That is a pretty serious prisoner's dilemma. And I love Parker's little nod at the end there of the, the only winning move is to play, because the, if anybody's ever seen um, uh, Dr. Strangelove and the whole the only winning move is not to play, I thought that was a really good throwback. I like I love that as the uh, end section because it's so true. Like the this this is a game where the the winning move is to be the first to play, and the second that these institutions and these governments and these central banks realize the threat, as soon as they recognize that it is a threat, the winning move is to be the first there. And if they already feel their power shaking, if they already feel their currency on the cusp of something detrimental, the choice is either to collapse with the rest of them or possibly be the leader coming out of the disaster. It's, it's genuinely the possibility of the entire political structure, the political power of the world, the, the reserve currency of the world shifting And I think we are in the age of the death of most of the major fiat currencies of this world. 
with or without Bitcoin, I think we have reached that tipping point. And I can't imagine political institutions not seeing the opportunity of when that shift happens, figuring out a way to position themselves as the top dog in the new order. And I think Bitcoin will look like that opportunity if it reaches that point. And the fact that most of them are dismissing it right now is part of the indication that it may be that sort it may be in that realm of size when we do get there, when they do finally realize that it is a threat. And even with, even with these recent like claims of uh, by Mnuchin or whatever that they're going to like really crack down on ICOs and cryptocurrency and stuff, they've pretty much shown that they're kind of taking a hands-off approach to Bitcoin, you know? Like, and they're not even being as difficult to scammers and ICOs as I would have thought. They're barely punishing them. Like, some of them are just getting, like, $500,000 fines for not uh, listing themselves as a security and then having to list as a security or give uh, investors the option of cashing out and essentially getting their money back and stuff. Like, that's not jail time. That's not... That's not shutting it down and fining them for every penny that they earned off of it. Some of these made tens of millions, 40 million, 50 million dollars, and they're getting fined half a million. That's incredibly lax. That's not, that's not a government that's ready to ban this. And if they banned Bitcoin, how do they get around, how, how do they avoid banning literally everything else in the ecosystem? How do they define Bitcoin specifically to ban? that is different from what you can do with any of these other coins or vice versa. Specifically when right now, Bitcoin is the one that's sort of being ignored. It's the one that clearly doesn't have, that can't get caught up in the SEC security con- like securities uh, contradiction um, because it's, it's the only one that clearly does not have that issue. So there's not even like a good precedent for them to ban it. I think it would have to be that they get scared or that it becomes incredibly, it just becomes huge and starts gaining all of this legitimacy. And they react to that by trying to um, equate it with drugs, which is what they've already done. They try to equate it with terrorism, which is kind of something they've already leaned on. Like, it's just the general um, attack it at the edges, attack its image, and then heavily control it. And Bitcoin is inherently one of those things that does not like to be controlled. It does not care or know about those controls. Those controls exist in jurisdictions. They do not exist on Bitcoin. They do not exist on the network. So basically, my, my position on this has always been that they seem, they, I think they took too long already. Um, and as it continues to gain legitimacy, the attempt to outright ban it, I don't think will be politically feasible. Um, and if it ever does become politically feasible, uh, because Bitcoin has become valuable enough and grown enough, I think it will be inherently threatening the fiat currencies, and we will see some of them already falling, because that $2 trillion or whatever it is has to come from somewhere, and there will be too many of those same central banks and same political institutions who see an opportunity. And they are not ones to turn down opportunity for more power and more wealth. So I fully expect some sort of crackdown in the future. 
um, at least from those governments that have the most to lose. U.S. being a good example, but when they get to the point where they have a lot to lose, maybe um, that's actually a really good article from, uh, wait, was it Nick Carter? Or it was on Coindesk, I think. Um, but I think it was Nick Carter. I, I could be wrong. I'll try to, I'll try to look it up and I'll, I'll um, uh, actually, I'll probably try to get permission to read this one. I have to contact Coindesk. Um, but it's about how basically uh, Bitcoin right now is reinforcing the dollar's position. Um, and it's a really good argument. I'll, I'll actually just save that until, uh, until we uh, get back to that. Maybe I'll be able to read that one. But again, I think, I think the country that is first to adopt Bitcoin, that is the first to embrace it in a major way, and right now that is the dollar. Uh, that, is, that is the U.S. Um, the vast majority of investors are in the U.S., um, and despite the very not super not nice regulatory environment, there are, I mean, granted, there are definitely some uh, caveats to that. Like it's not miserable, but KYC AML is pretty damn strict and trying to uh, comply with all the regulations and getting individual licenses in all the states. I mean, it's a nightmare. I've heard some horror stories in how all the shit that goes into having to pull that off. Um, but despite that, it's still the dominant Bitcoin ecosystem, the dominant uh, wealth in the Bitcoin environment is in the U.S. And that could literally end up supporting the dollar. The economy with the most Bitcoin very likely could end up with the strongest currency as a consequence. Unfortunately or fortunately, um, I, get, I think we'll get to see. <laughs> Um, exactly what that looks like and exactly what the prisoner's dilemma unfolds and who embraces and who uh, defects. Um, but I, I think we'll be proven right. Um, I think Parker Lewis will be proven right that the incentives are such that we can basically tell a in a game-theoretical way what the likely outcomes of this battle are going to be. I mean, we've seen it before. We've seen what happens when we put these, this game theory to the test. I mean, the, the users of Bitcoin held the line against roughly 90% of the Bitcoin hash power, and they, they kept the system decentralized. They, they prevented its change. They prevented an unwanted change to the system. And they did so because the game theory backed them up. Like I was there and there were arguments and there were discussions on a Reddit and they would go deeply into it. Why uh, No2x was going to win. And they were right. They were absolutely right. And I think we're going to have that test again. Um, and that is going to be around some country and some weakening institute, political institution trying to ban Bitcoin or uh, make it impossible to use in their jurisdiction, and it is going to work against them. And the players who play the hardest and play the fastest and the earliest are going to be the ones that benefit the most, and there will be very little time to react when it happens. They will either lay the proper groundwork, or they will likely be punished in a, a hard, a very difficult to correct way very quickly. 
Um, and I think that comes with the whole, the whole gradually then suddenly idea. This is going to happen gradually. And if they do not lay the groundwork, they are suddenly going to have the, their value, their prominence, or their, um, their dominant position pulled out from underneath them. And there's going to be little they can do after that. They're going to have months to react. And I think it will lead to a cascade, an avalanche of jurisdictions trying to appease Bitcoin, trying desperately to make sure they don't miss this movement. Maybe I'm wrong there, but I like to bet on the fact that humans are self-interested. And when a lot of these countries literally appear as if they're almost throwing in the towel on their currencies already, self-interest, preservation, survival will kick in, and they will be Bitcoiners. At least that's where I'm putting all of my money. So I got skin in the game on that one. <laughs> all right. Uh, I guess that, that's it. I don't think I had anything else to say. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you again to Parker Lewis, uh, at Parker Lewis on Twitter. I'll have everything in the show notes so that you can follow him and Unchained Capital. We got one more left in this awesome Gradually Then Suddenly series. Um, uh, maybe we'll get to that one next week. I'll, uh, I'm sorting out my schedule right now for those reads. So thank you so much for listening. Do not forget, we just, I just got off a call yesterday. I got a great episode coming for y'all next week on the Bitcoin 2020 conference. I know you guys are super jacked. If you do not have your tickets, get your tickets now, guys. Um, and I've got some really awesome stuff to share with you on Monday in that episode. So thank you all. I will talk to you then. Have a wonderful weekend. I love you. Until next time, take it easy, guys. Thank you.